a phrase that I got and I have it on my board all the time now is, what do they need now? And it's really kind of helped me bring my attention. So I will always have my board to see that phrase because there are times when I just won't be focused enough to ask myself at that particular time. But it's what do they need now? Do they need a hand around the shoulder? Do they need a specific detail? Do they need to be told, keep doing what we're doing, it's going to drop? Do they need to be chewed out at that particular time? And hopefully as we go along, the last one becomes less and less where we can trust them and they can trust me that when we're talking, we're talking as a trusting unit. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Ireland's under-18 national team head coach, Paul Kelleher. Coach Kelleher is here today to discuss reframing anger and ego to avoid burnout, using imagery in your basketball terminology, transition offensive concepts, and we discuss Irish versus English humor in the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a rating and review. Follow us on Twitter and YouTube for daily detailed breakdowns and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Paul Kelleher. I wanted to start with the concept of anger and ego in coaching. It's something that I know you've thought a lot about and done, you know, studying on. And so if we could start there and your thoughts on the relationship between anger, ego, and then how that affects and relates to being a coach. I guess as a young coach, I mean, I'm heading into my 24th year now. As a young coach, I was that over-enthusiastic, over-exuberant coach and had so much energy. And, you know, I think over time, it became very aggressive where the enthusiasm became aggressive. And, you know, you become to over-coach as you think you become more knowledgeable about the game. And, you know, especially with young players and, you know, with youth basketball, it's it's not always 100% perfect, sometimes not even 50% perfect. And as young coaches, we don't handle those situations quite very well. So, you know, it became a situation where you become to overcoach. And I think overcoaching is the tangible of probably a lack of preparation or not coaching something quite well. You know, I started where a lot of my coaching was against no defense. You wanted to show that you could teach the game without having any defense in, in the way. So over time, you you kind of build up some new techniques and became a situation where we started adding in defense. And I kind of had a couple of good friends who pointed me in the right direction years after the fact. And I suppose the last 10 years, I've really evolved, hopefully, to kind of where I coach things better and trust that what we've coached as a staff, as a, as a head coach, or what we've emphasized comes through, through gaming situations, I guess. Um, and I think that's helped me a little bit. But obviously, old habits die hard. Um, but I guess over the last two years, stepping away from senior basketball, 
that's helped me to kind of refocus a little bit. And I was once told I won't know how good of a coach I'm going to be until I burn out. And I essentially burned out. And during that burnout process, I tended to be a little bit over aggressive, you could say, towards players. And that that's where I guess the ego and the anger kind of clash and explosions happen. And it's how we handle that as coaches. I know in a previous podcast with Coach uh, Will Vote, you asked that question in terms of what's an elite coach. And I think it's those coaches are the ones that can handle the storm much better than everybody else in one respect. Can you remember what were the things that were causing the most anger in you as a coach? A couple of years back, I had a chat with a good friend of mine. And he was trying to be nice to me in terms of, you know, I was beginning to lose the plot maybe a little bit. And one of the things he mentioned was that because I coached so hard and I was quite detailed while I felt in my practice plans and went through every possible detail we could have, is that when a player made an error, I put it as an insult towards me that they weren't executing what we had thought. And I think as as coaches, we want to prove that we're capable of of coaching. We want to prove that we're, we're good at what we do. And I think at times we don't handle errors very well. And I think that was a massive part in having anger as a coach on the sideline is not being able to handle errors well. So I think as coaches, we have to have a resilience and mental strength to allow players make errors. And a couple of years back, I coached senior women for a year. And one player in particular was quite dynamic and always looking for, I suppose, what I used to call a highlight pass. And with women, I wasn't as aggressive, so I had to come up with a new way. And we kind of gave her two lives. And I said, the two lives are yours whenever you use them. That's on you. But then when they're used, you're back in my hands again. So I kind of had that control element a little bit, but also gave her the autonomy to make those decisions. And ultimately, against what was perceived to be lower teams, they were used up pretty quickly because she thought she could do it the whole time. And in one respect, I had her had control over for the rest of the game. But against a better team, she was very, very smart and never utilized them until they were absolutely necessary. So it was kind of ratification in one respect that she knew the game well, but she needed to have, I wouldn't say barriers, but some just kind of parameters and where it was best to use them and let her figure it out herself. And that was probably one of my better years on the sideline where I handled the anger quite well because I managed the roles and things like that. And I think... As coaches, when we don't give specific roles and things don't work out well for us, that's when the most anger comes in. And again, that goes into the lack of prep. And then we begin to what we said earlier in terms of emotional interference. I think as coaches, when we don't prepare teams well, we try and push them and guide them in everything we do and we're speaking all the time. And that creates an emotional interference and frustration for some players. And I probably didn't get that until the last couple of years where players just want to be guided and not told or overcoached. And sometimes that can cause an awful lot of anger then as well. To follow up, you brought up an interesting point for me when you talk about control. What do coaches control? Or as you've kind of matured as a coach, it's more realizing you don't control and it's more learning to let go and allow mistakes to happen? I think there's a combination of both. And I think it's what areas of the game can we have a positive influence rather than control now? And I think the areas where we can have that positive influence in a controlled manner where we can ask questions and and ask the players what their thoughts are in terms of that stuff. And that's kind of like 
timeouts, half time, and even in an evaluation of post game situations. And one of the things I learned um, the last couple of years coaching senior was trusting your leaders and being okay with information they give you if you're willing to ask the question. I remember one practice in particular, we were coming off of a really good run of games, but we had a midweek practice and it was awful. I mean, awful. And I was getting quite frustrated and I didn't know why they weren't getting what we were asking about. We were gaming everything. You know, I thought there was good, good energy. I just decided, right, everybody go shoot two free throws, grab some water if that's what you want to do, whatever you're comfortable right now to get us refocused. I just beelined for a couple of senior players in an unsubtle way, if beelining can even do that. But I just asked the question, all right, what's going on here? Am I not giving the correct information? Are we flat? Do we need to change something? Do we need to change a drill? Whatever it was. And the player in question said, do you really want the answer? And I said, I haven't asked it unless I want the answer. And he said, I don't think you're telling us the right things. And I was like, okay, what do you need to hear? And he gave me a couple of quick words. Boom, let's get back at it. All right, finish up your last free throw, grab your last sup of water. Let's get back at this. Change one or two words. Boom, exceptional second half of practice. And I think there are seasons where I've done that well and we've had really good seasons. And there are some seasons where I've done that awfully. And I think as players... You know, we can have ups and downs as players on the floor. And I think as coaches, we can have ups and downs of seasons where we coach in the game quite well, where we don't coach in game quite well, where we develop great practices. Uh, we develop great chemistry. Some years we do a very poor job of it. And I guess over time, it's getting all those good bits. And can we as coaches put them all together later? And it takes time. But can we put them all together where we can have consistent seasons doing all those off-court, on-court and connections as best we possibly can? And I, I'm still trying to get there. Yeah. When we're talking about anger and coaching a different way, for you, is it where you've gotten to a point or where you're working on getting to a point where you actually don't get angry inside when these things happen because you look at it a different way? or you're just not showing the anger, you're still getting angry inside like you did before, you've just, you're not channeling it the same way, if that makes sense. That's a great question. And I guess I'm, I'm the type of person who's very in the moment. And I guess there were times, uh, one game in particular, really in 20, 2013, last game of the European Championships, we're playing Slovak Republic. Both teams are like done. I mean, it was, it was a really poor game. We were down a half time. We're one up with maybe seven seconds to go, something like that. And one of the players goes up to get the rebound, pulls it down with one hand, hops off his knee, goes out of bounds. I spend the entire time out chewing him out. We had seven seconds to win our last game, which would have, for our nation, would have been really good with a 500 record and had four wins out of eight. Would have been a really great campaign for us. And I spent 60 seconds chewing him out. You know, and I focus on all the wrong things. So I think focusing is very, very important. And a phrase that I got a number of years back when coaching women from a sports psychologist, and I have it on my board all the time now, is what do they need now? And it's really kind of helped me bring my attention. So I will always have my board to see that phrase because there are times when I just won't be focused enough to, to ask myself at that particular time. 
but it's what do they need now? Do they need a hand around the shoulder? Do they need a specific detail? Do they need to be told, keep doing what we're doing, it's going to drop, keep doing what we're doing defensively? You know, they're making tough shots. Can they make that all the time? Do they need to be chewed out at that particular time? You know, and hopefully as we go along, the last one becomes less and less where we can trust them and they can trust me that when we're talking, we're talking as a trusting unit. Every team that we have has, I suppose, a different characteristic about it. So like a couple of years ago, we had a lot of Irish-based players and we used our phrase Lakela, which is Gaelic for together. So we had the Irish connection and being together. And every group we have, we have a new theme this year with COVID going on. And we don't know if we're going to have a Europeans or not. But our theme for this team <laughs> is Triumph and Adversity, TIA. In every message, we try and highlight that. In every Zoom call that we have, we, we try and highlight that. That Yeah, we are in an adverse situation. We are practicing a different way, whether it's me sending out videos of specific actions every week. But we are learning. It's just in a different way, but we will overcome this adversity to, to be a good basketball team. Looking, I guess, at the other side of the coin, when there are times that maybe a player or the team, they do need you to be fiery and they need you to maybe raise your voice or, like you say, get on a player. What are you mindful of then in those situations, you know, like trying to walk that fine line between using your anger to motivate or for a positive influence and not going too far to where, you know, like you said, you're in a timeout and you haven't really delivered any message unfortunately the, the not delivering any message has been far too often but i guess it is that element of can we push the right button there's a, a lot of players that don't get that maybe as coaches we, we consciously or unconsciously don't get on because they're just they do things that well a lot more than everybody else so it can become a favoritism thing or perceived to be a favoritism thing but for me, I guess there are a time when I will utilize those players where they don't get as much aggressive talk, we'll call it. And I'll utilize that to fire everybody else up because, oh, so-and-so hasn't never got yelled at. There must be something wrong if he's getting it. Is that a good way of doing it? I don't know. But sometimes it does push the button. And I remember one player, the end of our 2015 campaign, we were playing Luxembourg. We'd already beaten them three times in prep. We were 12 down with like three minutes to go. And I don't think I coached the kid in high school or secondary school here, coached him at club and obviously now coaching him at um, an international. I don't think I've ever gotten in this case. And I pushed the button with three minutes to go, took a gamble. He ended up having like 16 points between the last three minutes and overtime and ended up getting us over the line. So sometimes we have to gamble. Sometimes we get lucky. Sometimes we've never pushed the button before and, we just go places. But I think today is different now. Today's mentality is different. I think we have to really coach our players in a different way. And the one thing I will say is that by creating a better terminology sheet for us and small keywords, I feel I've communicated better with players. They're taking in the information better. And therefore, on the fly, I might just shout one keyword, get them switched on. I'm not as aggressive and I'm enjoying my coaching a lot more. I think that's a really important point. So just so, I mean, from my understanding, so you'll make some some keywords that the whole team knows, so triggers the team, but also then like cools you down as well. Is that kind of the double meaning of these words? Yeah, I mean, we're a big transition team. We're a big tempo team. All our terminology in one respect is very assertive terminology. So like 
flatten the defense. You know, that's that's a very you know aggressive term. Um, mm -hmm. You know, getting jail is what we call the charge circle. It's a Rick Pitino term. You know, so again, we're getting jailed to punish somebody. So again, like I just have to kind of say to maybe your forward, get in jail. I don't have to be screaming at them. We know what jail means. So we know we need to pin them. We need to make ourselves available. We know the spot we need to get to. So it has a whole ream of information in just that one word. And for me, that's really helped to kind of get to a place where I'm comfortable in communicating without having to scream three or four sentences. Coach, the terminology piece, we could hang on that for a second. Where are you getting these terms? How many do you have? What does your terminology vocabulary sheet look like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. I mean, I have a wife that encouraged me to to travel. I had parents who really encouraged me to to chase what I wanted to do, which was which which coached professionally when I was younger. And I guess I've been very fortunate to be around programs and people that have shared a lot of their insights and. Sometimes I'll, I'll come across something that I like and I like the fact that it has a term, but it might not reflect what we want to try and achieve. So like we, you know, some people will say, get to the sidelines. We call it hug sidelines because we really want that to be a term where like when you're hugging somebody, you are that close. Um, obviously in today's COVID, we're not allowed to do that. So, um, <laughs> but I think it's, um, you know, our terminology. So like a pipe, everybody knows that a pipe is a straight line. So rim to rim, we call that pipe. So like when our forwards are running, sprint the pipe, you know, and we know that that's a flat out straight line. So we really want an image, an image associated with our terminology as much as we possibly can. So like when we're playing defense, you know, we always emphasize keep the gate closed. So we want to be square. We want to make sure we don't open the gate. And when you open the gate, anything can be let out and anything can be let in. So we really want to emphasize our one-on-one -on -one defense um, as a gate and the on-ball defense that person needs to have their gate closed all the time. Otherwise, there's trouble on the other side of the fence. I think what me and Dan are always interested in, and I think it's a bigger conversation within terminology, is getting transference, especially at the youth level. So like I said, I think terminology is key and has a big role. But what are some of the other things that you've had success with as far as getting transference from doing something well on the practice court to doing it well in the game? Yeah, we, we do a ton of video and we will put all the terminology on every action as they move through it. So it's not like that we'll have just a kind of a spiel at the bottom of, of a video. You know, we'll freeze it. We'll identify the action. We'll identify the skill if there is one there. And we will have the terminology next to it. So not only are they hearing us do it, they have it in their camera roll, which a bunch of people have spoken these days now in terms of, you know, we have to understand how youth players operate and they have a phone in their hand all the time. So by sending them, you know, our scout report, sending them our video breakdown, our own video usage. So one of the things that we're doing right now with our national team is we, and this is something that they came up with, which was fantastic, is they wanted us to come up with an action a week and a skill a week. So we send them out an action a video of an action and a video of the skill that we want them to be aware of. So hopefully when we do get back on the floor, that they'll have some idea of our terminology, they'll have an idea of some of the actions, they'll have seen it. And most of the time we show it through two or three teams that's not just one team. So they know that it has been successful for a number of programs if it has been successful for us. So I think 
naming spots on the floor is another really good thing for us. So like people call it the 45, we call it the slot. We call the elbow the deep slot. So it's the same line, but we want to get deeper on the slot. And that then hopefully turns heads and gets defenses scrambling. And that way then they can see the benefit of that. And if that's something that we really want to emphasize in the next practice, we will show a ton of attacking deep slots and show the benefits of it. And we'll also show the, the potential errors of it to avoid the players doing those things. And it is inevitable that they'll come back with some really great questions because they see it, they feel it. And if it's successful, they'll want to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes. So um, terminology, video, and we show a lot of positive video. We don't show a whole lot of negative video because I just believe that, especially early in the program, if we show a lot of positive video, we're trying to show them what's great about what we're doing here rather than saying this is potential pitfalls, all that sort of stuff. I'm the one that kind of usually brought negativity in terms of when it wasn't executed and that's where the anger comes in and the ego and stuff. So, But I, I have found video has been amazing for us. Coach, you said something a second ago that I just wanted to come back to as well and that was the differentiation between the slot and the deep slot. <laughs> what kind of actions do you prefer them to get to the deep slot rather than the slot or you know why do you differentiate those two and what do you like to i guess run out of the two different spots i know the entire basketball community runs a ton of ball screens now from our teams that i've coached i've always had small teams but quick teams and for me i have a conscious decision of staying away from ball screens for the simple reason if we've got small guards compared to other federations we're bringing huge lengths to a point on the ball where there's going to be massive potential for deflections, massive potential for turnovers, and easy runouts. So for me, staying away from ball screens early in the offense is huge for us. The second thing why I try and stay away from ball screens is I find with young kids, if you're a ball screen team, they're cognizant of starting the offense with a ball screen and therefore affects the tempo of the transition. And I don't use the word fast break anymore. I use the word transition. So like there are different points in the game where we want to have a quick transition, a slow transition, and maybe an out of control, which is your primary break essentially. But if we want our offense to flatten their defense, if we want our offense to be aggressive with the ball in their hands or give it up early, if we put a ball screen into our offense early, I believe they start thinking about the ball screen rather than trying to score early in the, in the shot clock. The deep slot allows us to do that. And what I mean by the deep slot is if we don't have an early offense, a head pitch, we want to attack that deep slot to get the defense turning heads. So when we kick it out, they're scrambling. We've created a long closeout and now we can get into that dominoes effect of, you know, pierce and spray, move the ball, get the reversal, create more long closeouts and inevitably hopefully get uncontested layups, three-point plays, uncontested threes and stuff like that. I'm very open also to transition threes. I'm a big fan of them. So we kind of talk about being uncontested, in rhythm and on balance. And if those three things are followed, to me, I'm okay with you taking the shot in the first two seconds of the shot clock in the first pass. I'm more than okay with that because you follow the three things. What we've started adding in now is it's got to be within your range. So if it's not in your range, now we identify what a good shot is and we spend a ton of time about identifying good shots because when you're as small as we are as a federation, every shot has to count. So if we 
live and die by shooting in transition as long as it's an uncontested in rhythm, on balance, and in your range, I'm more than okay with that. And going back to what you said about the deep slot and the slot and the, the ball screen stuff, what I liked about that though, and I kind of think what you're saying that makes a lot of sense to me, do you teach different ball screens though when you do teach them in the different slot areas? So like if they're in the regular slot, are you teaching a reverse or, you know, step up ball screen, and if the ball gets into the regular slot, then you teach to, you know, close it off to a normal ball screen, or do your guys have different actions for those different spots? If we're going to ball screen, it's going to be deliberate in, in why we do it. It's it's part of a scheme. Okay. There are two probably reasons why we will use ball screens in transition. So on that pipe, yeah, we have a deliberate reversal point. So on that pipe, we have a specific spot called the point pipe, which is the old point guard, bring it down the middle of the floor top of the key outside the tree so that lane for us on the pipe and being at the point pipe serves two purposes for us one we always have somebody to reverse the basketball and two we always have somebody in transition defense so while we run a potential number break we lose the deliberateness after the break so we have you know we're we're into five out four one into five out we constantly change between both so we could end up having forwards on the on the corner three so and that we're more than okay with that as long as we have the point pipe filled so we have somebody in transition defense even when we're on offense so within the point pipe you know if we're coming down the floor there are two transition ball screens that we will potentially use so there's always an outlier there's always an exception to the rule i guess so we would call across the grain so what most people might call a rub screen so if we're changing the ball we're changing sides of the floor with our point guard we would just use that rub screen and we call that crossing the green so if the defender's on the above the hip that's an opportunity to get inside their shoulders get them chasing us behind and we would just use that rub screen to create a little bit of separation while it's not a natural ball screen or even potentially a ball screen we just use it as a potential rub screen just to create that little bit of separation the second one that we might utilize is if we have a forward and i Joachim Noah at the Bulls. Forget the Joachim Noah after the Bulls. But the Joachim <laughs> Noah with the Bulls, to me, was probably the best stretch five who played the three-point line without being able to shoot the three-point shot. And what generally happened was a lot of teams, a lot of fives, backed off him to the nail. So on the reversal, he would go into a dribble at or a pitching and get and create a 2v1 in the action of the, of the ball screen. And that is something that I think we we were quite good at the last couple of years is having those stretch fives that couldn't shoot the three where teams would back off onto the nail and we would just create that 2v1 the ball screen to create our dominoes. And that's probably the only two times that we'd probably utilize a ball screen in the early to mid shot clock without being delivered, I guess. I'd like to stay on your transition. It's really interesting. So are you encouraging the, the throw-ahead pass only if it's a clear advantage? Are you otherwise wanting the point guard to hold it and try to get to that deep slot to then, you know, create the long advantages? And then if that's not there as his next progression, then let's kind of, re, you know, reverse it. Like you said, maybe it's cut, but most likely just throw it to the trailer and let's play the the second side. Yeah, so we, um, we use an action called a replay. And I think a lot of people call it boomerang, a boomerang pass. We call it a replay for around five years now but it's in terms of we're, we're very much a, i wouldn't say we're a sideline break um team we kind of try to bring the ball down in line with the slot so we're not in, we're not crossing over the the forwards getting into jail so we have five lanes in our transition we're hugging sidelines the slot lines and the pipeline mm-hmm. and obviously the the slot line the and the sidelines are both sides of the floor so 
we try and pitch ahead as much as we possibly can. So we call the lane, I suppose everybody calls it the baseline drive and, and drift. We call that the channel. So from the edge of the rim to the end line, sideline to sideline, we call that the channel. So we call it channel drive, channel show, you know, attack the channel as much as we possibly can, create strong side releases. So one of the things that we try and do with our early offense is we want to attack the channel. For us, by attacking the channel, it means that the defender's chests are facing their end line. So when we hit the replay pass, they're opening their gates and now we can attack their gate. So that's something that's huge for us. And that's, to me, creating separation and transition is, to use your phrase, completely underrated. Um, And I, I think... We look too much to ball screens. I'm not. I'm not against ball screens. There are definitely certain times to it, and a lot of our deliberate schemes have a ball screen in it for a specific reason. But I do think that at times we're too focused on the ball screen early in the offense when it's just as easy to create that separation and create that advantage through our transition concepts rather than having to use a ball screen the whole time. Sticking on the channel drive, I kind of want to walk through that real fast just visually, because I think it's some great points there. So you're talking about like a baseline drive, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. want to you want to explore that early in the offense. Two questions. The first one is, do you want the opposite corner filled on a channel drive or do you want that opposite corner to lift to the 45 or to the wing? And then the second question is on the replay pass or the boomerang, what action follows that then in your normal flow? Two things, I guess, in that one. On the channel drive, a lot of teams right now are beginning to try and take that away. So over the last couple of years, we've had to really teach or identify, or we don't call it small side of games. I, I like to call it games of purpose. So what's the purpose of our three and three? What's the purpose of our two and two and so on and so forth? We've really tried to take that away. So in our practices, from an offensive and defense perspective, we work on defensively taking away the channel to try and understand what we may end up giving up by doing that. And then from an offensive perspective, we want to do that in order to, for our players to see it, that we can make an adjustment on that. And an interesting lesson was back in 2013, we, we lost our best player um, before the tournament started. We played Slovenia, a really, really good Slovenian team, and they were absolutely tanking us in a halftime. We were 19 down, and we made one adjustment, and we took away their channel drives. They were killing us on it. We need to see, can we make them do something different? And we took away the channel. And they didn't make any adjustments on it. And we got back in the game with a three to win the game with 30 seconds to go. We missed it, but we gave them a run. And from that adjustment, I then learned that someday that could happen to us. So how do we now teach our players to see both the channel show and the weak side 45 or the weak side wing as a release point for us? So that's something I think that we we work on. In terms of the replay, going back to your point there, um, Dan, We've had a lot of teams that when we replay it, they'll overplay us. So we tend to get an awful lot of back cuts on that as well. It also depends on who you're replaying to. So like there will be times where it's a forward that gets it and they will allow us make that pass. And then it becomes their takeaway, the reversal through the point pipe and what do we need to do on that? And we talk an awful lot about open and closed passing lanes. And the one thing we don't want to do is we do not want to give a rainbow pass. So again, you're talking about another terminology with an image to it, because at the end of the rainbow, silly, silly, stupid thing, but at the end of the rainbow is the gold. So the ball is the gold. We do not want to give away gold. So that's why we use the term rainbow pass. We want laser passes. We want to give passes, laser passes, where we're constantly forcing the defense 
to scramble or create long closeouts. So if we use terminologies like lasers, we all we've all played laser guns and stuff like that. So that's kind of the whole rationale behind our terminology is can an image be associated with the terminology that we use? Coach, a philosophical question. Why do you prefer the channel drive over getting to the middle? I guess it's more of an early... In, an early transition, yeah. yeah. I guess it's it forces the defense late in the game to be aware that that's what we're trying to do. But we're adept to making that adjustment. So when they're sprinting back now, where early in the game, we've attacked the channel, we've gotten a couple of easy layups, They've helped late. We've kicked out. We've got a couple of uncontested threes. Late in the game, they're going to have to scramble on that. And now when they scramble on it, now that's our chance to maybe make an adjustment, attack middle or, you know, we call it um, strong side release where we kick it back where we came from. There'll be somebody rotate back around and we'll kick it back to where they came from on the strong side release. So, you know, some teams will, will scout us, especially the Europeans where you're being seen two, three, four days in the bounce. They'll take that away early. So we then need to be prepared to make that adjustment early in the game rather than later in the game, which is what has happened earlier in the tournament. When you are making that adjustment, will the role of what you want from the corner change? Will you, will you want him to start and then cutting if we're going middle penetration or is it still hold and space? or read it, obviously. So there's so many conversations on, on Twitter now and, and Facebook and any seminar about like when you cut, when don't you cut. One of the first things we do in any program, so when we're trying outs for players, one of our first drills and one of our first teaching points is about cutting and holding space. So a couple of phraseologies that we use is um, see a head, see a shoulder. So we try and identify with, with players, if you see a shoulder, hold space and get to an open passing lane. If you see a back of a head, automatic cut, back of the head, back cut. They're the first two things that we teach, even in tryouts. I used to be the type of guy where tryouts just leave and play to see what they're what they're like, blah, blah, blah. Now, tryouts is a practice session for us. Can we implement? Can we see who's coachable? Can we see who's not coachable? Can we see who's never been coached? And they may actually excel by being coached. They may excel with some structure. And then you might have guys who have been absolutely tremendous and they're tremendous because they've had no decent players around them defensively and they've been left to do whatever they want, have had no accountability and struggle massively with making the next step to the next level. Um, and there are things that we just find out by having an actual practice session or in tryouts and we they're the first two things that we implement. Another technical follow-up on that channel drive about the decision-making process of the the channel driver i guess specifically as they're attacking do you want them to jump stop to make a pass or do you want them to keep their dribble like a nash dribble under the rim almost if nobody's available and then a second part of this is do you have anybody cutting to the rim on the channel drive for a potential drop down pass i guess this is where like you have your automatics versus kind of like see and play um i don't like the word read because it's we don't read anything in, in the game we see things so instead of reading we call it seeing we call it seeing so we want to see where the defense is we want to see where your offensive teammates are in terms of automatics on a channel drive we want a channel drive channel show we want a channel drive front of the rim and front of the rim for us is anywhere from jail which is the charge circle to the nail so you can be anywhere of that. So we want to have that space between you and the defender. So if your defender's in charge circle or in jail, don't be afraid to step up to the nail where you're going to get an uncontested 
in rhythm on balance shot. So allowing that space between you and the defender. And then we, the third one is normalic, is strong side release. So if I'm attacking the channel and my defender is on my hip and we're getting that help from the weak side, we need to have a release on the same side. So, and again, the thing that we say is make sure you keep going until you are in an open passing lane. So if you're not in an open passing lane, you're hurting us. So even if that means going from the point pipe all the way down to the corner three and that's where the open passing lane is, then so be it. So they're the kind of things that we kind of really emphasize as a younger coach, very deliberate, absolutely. You know, you have to stick by those. Now, I think I'm better at trusting the players that they're going to identify those things themselves. And then we can just kind of discuss it when, when we need to, if, if it's not being executed as, as to say something that needs to be improved for the next game. When they make the channel drive and they hit that release in the corner, what what is his kind of read? I mean, obviously open shoot it, but do you encourage any sort of driving or like to redrive or would you say, hey, we really want the shot or the extra pass here and try to avoid the drive again? What's kind of your philosophy on that? On every catch, we really try and encourage three things. And it's all emphasized in terms of quick choices. With the team that we have, we're shorter than everybody else by about two inches in every spot, if not three. We probably do not practice as often, so we don't have the necessary ability to understand pressure situations. So we try and get to a situation where we want the defense scrambling. And sometimes we may make a bad choice. But the one thing it has to be, it has to be a quick choice. We don't want any stoppers. So in terms of that, no matter where we are on the floor, quick choices. On the catch, quick pass, quick shot, quick dribble. And they're the three things. Make a choice. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. But at least if it's quick, the defense have to react to it and we can react off of that reaction if needs be. But in terms of the channel show, yes, depending on what the closeout is, we might encourage them to open their gate. So like if if I'm on, say, if I'm attacking with my left hand in, in the channel and I pitch it with my left hand to the opposite side, now I'm I'm a receiver. If the gate is open to my left hand, yes, we want to attack middle, definitely. Hmm. If they're a square closeout, it's probably going to be a little bit more difficult to, to attack it. So we call it a one-up. And that's actually um, a phrase that my previous assistant, Kieran O'Sullivan, brought to us. We used to call it an extra pass. He called it one up and one down. So if the ball has been swung around the top of the three-point line, the extra pass is one down. And if it's coming from the channel, it's one up. So it's yeah. given us an indication of the direction we want to actually pass the basketball in one respect. So again, it's just taking the, the thinking, as we mentioned earlier, about overthinking. It gives us that option of helping the players to take the thinking out of their decision-making at times. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times, Coach, that you have, unfortunately, some smaller players. And, you know, we've talked about cutting. So I got to imagine being able to finish is super important for your guys. Some of the research uh, and the papers you sent us, you know, you made an emphasis that on missed layups often lead to made layups on the other end. So what are you teaching in terms of finishing? And more importantly, like, yeah, what finishing moves do you feel are, are the most important for the youth level or your team? Yeah, uh, you know, we've, we've always had small teams, smaller guards, and then the front line, you know, we probably haven't had the athleticism or consistent skilled forwards to help us drive on, I guess, or, or, or kind of beat those big nations. We've always been close. But when I look back, it's a number of things. It's a turnover at the wrong time when they crank up the pressure. It's a missed layup that leads to a run out on the other end or that 
we just missed that vital free throw at the right time that would maybe make it a two-point game that we could still allow a foul happen. All those small details that kind of hurt our federation in those big games. And one of the, the first skills, like there'll be players who are naturally gifted at having wide finishes that will be able to go up and under on the other side. You know, we've had those players that do that or the rondo finish on the inside off the wrong foot um, and things like that. But the one thing that we've tried to emphasize over the last couple of years is that no matter what type of finish you're having, that's got to be balanced. And I think with balanced finishing, it gives us a better chance of controlling our own transition that we may potentially have the ability to have an offensive rebound or, or stuff like that. But one of the big footworks that we do is what we call the pro finish. And, you know, Derek Rose is huge at this. It's that stride stop where your outside foot's your, your pivot foot. So we teach that pretty much right off the bat in the first. So the, from a spacing perspective, see a head, see a shoulder. And then the pro stop is probably the first skill set that we, we teach. And they're the two things that we try and base our program around and give them freedom in, in all of other areas if, if at all possible. But the pro stop, because we can pivot away from traffic, if the finish isn't there, if there's a bigger, stronger, more athletic, we can now pivot and create separation to make an outside uh, single-hand push pass. Um, it also allows us to actually get across the rim, and we call it Alonzo when he was at UCLA, he did that quite a bit, of getting that pro stop and getting that left hand across to the side. Of the, so we call it uh, Alonzo. And just different things like that. But everything we try and do is be balanced around the rim. So we're not having what we call clanks or non-shooter finishes where it's just a rough finish where the ball goes every direction. We have no idea where it's going. And then we may end up having a three-on-one against us or or something like that. So there are the probably areas where you go back to your anger that when we don't execute those sort of things between effort and controlling so that's something that we control what you identified them um, Dan earlier on it's when we can control something and we don't do what we can control and not having effort they're the things that were kind of really kind of get my goat up coach what are some of the cues you'll give the guys to help with the pro stop to keep them balanced when executing this that's a great question and, and we do have those cues in terms of so first things first in terms of We'll do a ton of, and I, I know some coaches will talk about the disadvantage of limiting dribbles in, in games of purpose. So we will always put a three dribble limit on, but it doesn't mean that we have to use three dribbles. But we kind of teach those in terms of first dribbles to attack, second dribbles to create separation, and the third dribble, you should be able to score. And if you're not able to score on your third dribble, then it's got to be a kick out. So by outlining what each dribble should help us do, I think it just creates choices. And I think what we forget to do, and I'm not forgetting your question now, Patton, in terms of... um, I think we forget before a decision is made, we have to create choices. I think that's one of the things that we don't hear enough of, and we all we hear is decision-making, 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 decision-making. But we don't outline how decisions come about. I think we have to guide, teach, coach our players to understand that when we do something, we're creating hopefully two or three choices. And now we need to make a decision on which choice we're going to take. And that's what decision-making is to me. So attack on the first dribble, create separation on the second, and hopefully score or pass on the third. So when we play one-on-one, because I know Coach Boy put um, one-on-one as as sitting, (laughs) I was probably going to put it as a sub. But... (laughs) Because <laughs> I do think that you have to teach 
defence one-on-one to make sure that we're good at keeping the gate closed. And we also have to understand when we get into trouble, what we do when we get into trouble. And yes, that can help in two-on-two. Two. But we're one-on-one. When we emphasise the first dribble to attack, now we really are attacking because we want to get the defence on their heels. And now the second dribble creates separation. So that's learning how to do that and holding yourself accountable when you don't do it in a one-on-one situation. So that's just my opinion on that one. But in terms of recognising what types of finishes, so we call it a speed finish, a pro stop, or a jump stop, because sometimes we do have to jump stop. But a speed finish is when the defender is on your back, and a pro stop is when a defender is about 45 degrees on your hip, and you're trying to get inside them where they're running into your back. That's generally where we try and get to the pro stop as much as we possibly can. So speed finish and pro stop are probably our two things, and knowing the difference of when you speed finish and knowing the difference of when you pro stop. We do want to transfer now to start, sub, sit. And just a quick recap, we'll give you three different basketball, well, most of these are basketball basketball topics. You'll let us know which one you'd like to start, which one sub, get a little time in, which one would sit, or Coach Liam Flynn wanted to, to trade or send down. You know, you can do whatever you want, I guess, with that last one. So, Pat, I know you've got the first one, so we can kick this thing off. Yeah. Okay, Coach. Per usual, kind of an, an easier one here for you. So start, sub, sit in terms of humor, English humor, Irish humor, or American humor? Oh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I've got friends in all those places. I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to be in trouble. Can I trade all three and go for three different nationalities? Um, Yeah, um, I think, you know, we've got a a strange sense of humor in Ireland, and I don't think we're ever going to. You know, I wouldn't trade that for the world. We 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 have a strange sense of humor, and it's it's hilarious. <laughs> and you could end up in, you know, a remote place with in a bar, and you're going to get ripped apart, and you're going to be laughing at a guy ripping you apart because that's the type of humor that we have. <laughs> and then I think I've all you know I've spent so much time in the states in the last number of years, but I think the one thing that is is the sporting references to humor in the states always gets me. Um, so I think I'm going to have to to sub. American humor, and then definitely probably have to sit the English humor. I'm in, I'm in trouble either way, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we we figured that one might get you. In. Yeah, <laughs> you know us both having Irish backgrounds. I've had some friends from Ireland that I don't know. They just kill me. They just the humor, yeah. the the way the turns of phrase. You get. I mean, just absolutely love the Irish humor. Yeah. So I've been on the receiving end of our own humor, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe off air, I'll have to get a couple of good Irish jokes from you because it's always good to have one or two yeah, in the pocket. Yeah. So, coach, then uh, moving on, some tactical stuff now. This is an end of game scenario. So, I'll set the scene quickly and then we'll give you this the situation. So, it's a tie game and your guy's shooting a one on one free throw. He makes the first. I don't know if you guys have one on one back No, we no, have uh, two. We, 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 we went away with the one on one back in the. I want to say the early 90s. Yeah, I think I played like a 12 or 13-year-old when we lost the one-on-one. I'm a big fan of the one-on-one. I like the one-on-one. I'm disappointed we don't have it. But Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> the first free throw is made, whether it's a one-on-one or shooting two. So you're up one point now. The situation is now, how many guys do you want on the line as rebounders? We'll say there's five to six seconds left in the game now. So you're now winning up one. Do you want two rebounders? on the line in the lane do you want one rebounder in the line or do you want everybody off the line to set your defense okay i'm gonna put in, i'm gonna put an actual here now it depends all right <laughs> okay. so 
it depends on the press that we utilize and it depends on our front line. So if we're in a, a one, two, two, and depending on who's on the line, if our frontline guy is shooting the free throw, I won't put anybody in the, in the lane. So he's in situ, miss or make, he's in situ to run our one, two, two pressing situation. So at least we're slowing the ball down. If we're in a two, two, one, and one of our frontline guys is shooting, I put one in, one in the lane, and now he slots into the whichever one that is in. So it's the mm-hmm. right or the left. If it's our backline guy who's shooting the free throw, I'll have our two frontline guys in, in the lane and I will probably end up moving our back line to the second line and again, depending on where it is left or right. So we, you'll often hear me in a free throw situation with the guy on the line giving him the instruction of front line right, second line left, back line, whatever it is. So he doesn't have to look around where he is. That instruction will come from our sideline as to where he is. If we're in a man-to-man, then i got to figure out who's in the key who are we matching up line to and things like that. So I'm very unorthodox. It frustrates players. Um, sometimes the most obvious thing is to, yeah, we should have a big guy in there to kind of get the offensive rebound. I try and put in a situation where I'm trusting our players that they're going to make free throws and we're adapting on a make as opposed to an unsuccessful free throw. I try not and use the word miss free throws, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to say an unsuccessful outcome, but we're in a position to attack even on the miss if at all possible. So. Okay, a couple of questions and follow-ups for you on that. One, this is a conversation I know that we have here where, and I think one thing I maybe left out is assuming the other team is in the bonus or like what we call the one-on-one where if you got a, a foul going for the missed free throw by one of your offensive rebounders, they would get free throws on the other end. So this is a situation that comes up for us here a lot where, okay, it's a one-on-one, now we're up one do we really want our guys trying to knife in to get an offensive rebound where they could get an over-the-back foul and then they're shooting free throws on the other way? So that was, I guess, maybe one thing I left out. But the second question I have for you then, it sounds like maybe you prefer to have a zone press in these late-game situations as opposed to a man, or what's your thoughts there? Yeah, it depends on the length we have on the floor. Sometimes if we have a smaller lineup, it probably will go to a a zone press purely because it probably encourages a, a full-court rainbow pass and then we can maybe get a deflection and, and make an adjustment if it goes out of bounds or if we have it and stuff like that. So I've gambled with a lot of this stuff. I think the big thing about a zone press is that you're not really going to get cut through and therefore if somebody does cut, at least there's somebody in a passing lane somewhere that can at least recover. I think by being in a man-to-man situation that late in the game is somebody misses assignment or overplays in the passing lane and we get a back cut and now it's an uncontested situation at the rim potentially and we've no help situation. So, yeah, we, we've toyed with that over the years but I, I do think off of a free throw, I think pressing situations are a good way. I know in Spain they're probably fouled in that situation. My thing would be if we fouled and, and you're fouling the guy that is a 50, 60, 70% free throw shooter and taking a gamble with it and he ends up making those two for the first time ever I'm not sure I could handle that and that's on okay. that's on me so I'd rather them <laughs> score on us rather than us give them the opportunity to get two uncontested shots at the free throw lane okay coach start sub or sit in terms of passing passing out of the dribble a two hand pass or a jump pass oh I'm definitely like we're, we might skip subbing here we're, we're going to sit two of those last two we're going to um <laughs> Start passing off the dribble with one hand and then 
no one's getting subbed in. They're out of the rotation fully. They're suiting <laughs> up with sweatpants. And they're, uh, yeah, we're sitting the jump stop pass and we're sitting the two-handed pass. Interesting. Ultimately, we're trying to really push one hand, let it go. So, yeah, maybe I'm going to sub in uh, two-handed just to, uh, as I think about it. You might, need to, you might need to mute it, that one. I've made a fool of myself. <laughs> no. <laughs> Coach, I'm assuming then, you know, this kind of follows for if you're in like a pick and roll trying to hit that shake pass or maybe the cross-court corner pass. Yeah, I mean, we need a retreat. So we call it a slingshot dribble. Again, we go back to our per- terminology. It's so like a slingshot when we were kids. Where mm-hmm. we, so our retreat dribble, um, we call it a slingshot dribble. So we revert back out and then we try and go again. So we're trying to keep that ball alive the whole time. So by using a slingshot dribble, we're able to see, we're able to make cho- or create choices and then make a decision on whether we're going to go again with the dribble or whether we're going to make that outside hook pass. So, um, yeah, okay. so they're, they're the sort of things that we want to do. But going back to the channel earlier on, I mean, we teach, you know, um, we use the Jordan dribble as well. So like we'll, you know, we call it Jordan dribble because of the dunk that he got on Patrick Ewing on the baseline. So where he goes away and turns back. So we call that the Jordan dribble. And we kind of utilize that a lot too. So if we're getting into traffic, we'll Jordan dribble away, keep it on, on the one hand for a push pass or change direction with the one hand again. Uh, next, so start, sub, or sit. These are skills to teach guards outside of the normal like guard development skill sets i guess as a as a youth guard so you know we all know guards are going to end up learning how to dribble drive and maybe play in the pick and roll and things like that so these are other areas of the games to teach younger guards start sub or sits teaching guards to post to play in the post to teach guards to be great off ball screeners or to teach guards to roll like so screen and roll interesting interesting i'm definitely starting guards in the post especially in the modern game i mean we had a wonderful guard with us for years shane Collin, and he could play anywhere one to five and there were situations where he'd spend the whole third quarter in the post and he would make mincemeat of guys and then they're preparing for that and next he comes to the three-point line and he's hitting threes and then he just reads the situation. Where who's guarding me now? Where can I go? And I think having that one mentality, having that skill set, and then creating the IQ to know it, where his advantage is at any particular time in the game, I think is a huge thing. So I think definitely teaching guards to be able to post up. And some of the best posts I've seen have been from guards at times. I mean, you know, traditionally, you know, and that's where their creativity comes in, and you give players autonomy to kind of be funky in the post and we'll play games sometimes where we'll say the forward is only allowed to shoot threes and the guard is only allowed post up and now they're they're in situations where they're in opposite roles and they're learning about their teammates just as much as about what they can do at certain times so definitely start guards in the post I was never so you said off ball screens so that's a huge part for us so like when we're in transition we will send guards away to create single gaps left and right so as the screen is happening, we had that split second of attacking either single gap. So it's a huge thing for us. Um, so definitely sub that. And then the last one was sit. Uh, so you're going to be sitting and uh, teaching guards to roll. So I know there's huge tendencies in Europe right now to ball screen, to have guards and ball screen actions as a screener. That was probably one of the things I used to really lose my life on, to be honest, in terms of the anger stuff. <laughs> but I can actually see now with the ghosting, 
with the ghosting action of a ball screen now, I can definitely see why it's a definite advantage. So I have to, while it's there, I was once told to get your rotation right, you rotate nine, you play ace, and you trust five. So right now, screening by guards on the ball is in the rotation. It's going to be <laughs> utilised. But I'm not sure how often it's going to be utilised just yet. I think I have to trust myself and go away from my old thoughts on that one. It's not in the trust tree yet. It's not in the trust tree yet. <laughs> yeah, he's... He's, he's getting the last he's getting a minute in the end of the first half maybe yeah. and see how yeah. he does yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> yeah might be an ATO might be coming out of the yeah. quarter yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay yeah time yeah. to shine yeah yeah our, our last one we got for you it's in the same vein as Dan's one but now with bigs so start sub sit in terms of some big underutilized skills teaching them to attack closeouts on the perimeter teaching them to be the ball handler in the pick and roll or teaching them to come off of off ball screens, like for catch and shoots, you know, taking a stagger, taking a flare on the perimeter. I think in a modern game, all three of those could start. I'm a big fan of all of them. And in the last couple of programs, we've had a bunch of forwards that were capable of doing a lot of them. And we were able to do so much because of that. I'm a big fan of rim running. But there has been times where forwards aren't as mobile and they become into the trailer of the point pipe. And I think the ability of that person to not be a stopper in the offense, and we go back to our quick choices on the catch, quick shot, quick dribble, quick pass, applies to those forwards too. And we really try and encourage those to do the shooting, the dribbling and the passing. And I think if you take one of those away, your offense becomes predictable and therefore the defense can make gambles towards other players. So I would definitely start all three of those skill sets and make them a huge repertoire of of the forwards game for sure. When you get a talented young big guy, is there any of those three though that you would start with for that? So I think we you know you guys posted them the chop the chop cut the other day. Um we yeah. call it the roadrunner. So for me, in terms of I think one leads to the other. So I think being able to shoot it forces the long scramble closeout and therefore being able to do the roadrunner on that, which he called the chop. Um, mm. I think the two of them go hand in hand. So I okay. don't think that a forward is able to do a roadrunner unless the defense is scrambling to them. And the only way okay. a defender is going to scramble to them is if they have the respect to be able to shoot the basketball. So we had a forward in 2019, San um, real big boy, 6'7", maybe 6'8 now, but he was able to shoot the three. And the amount of roadrunners he had at the time were really good. He definitely allowed us to have more success, what we call pipe drives from the roadrunner because of his skill set his of being able to shoot the three and being able to put the ball on the floor. Well, Coach, thanks for... For, for taking part. Uh, you're off the start subset hot seat. Um, that was a lot of fun. So first of all, before we finish here, thank you very much for your time. This has been, gosh, really fun conversation yeah. for us. So thank you for all your thoughts. Oh, thank you for having me. We wanted to end today, you know, I guess full circle. We started this conversation about anger and coaching and, you know, how that can be detrimental and how we can learn from it. So I'd like to end kind of on the other side and ask you, what brings you the most joy about what you do as a coach? As a young coach, I thought it was winning. 
and maybe that's what creates maybe those anger coaches. And I think no, winning is important. I think it's it, it creates competitiveness. And but I wouldn't say it's the be all and end all. I think when I see kids compete, when I see them be confident in competing, when I see them, you know, enjoying other people's success, and that's a huge part of what we say in in our program. You know, if you want to be part of us, you've got to appreciate other people's success because there might be times when somebody's going to get the limelight and some people won't get the limelight and that can fester into envy and envy kind of kills kills chemistry so when i see teams appreciate other teammates success i think that for me is when you know you've nailed the right chemistry and you know you've nailed the right environment so i think yeah that's probably the thing that gets me on a high note is that when you know you've done everything you can and the right environment is in place for everybody to be successful and appreciate everybody's success. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for additional insights on this podcast with Coach Kelleher. Have a great week, Coach, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.